Today's reading is in Acts chapter thirteen, verses one to twelve. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers: Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up with the Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, "Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them." So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them sent on their way the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer. And false prophets named Bar Jesus, who was at attendance of the Parkinson, Sergius Paulus, the Parkinson, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Alimus the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the Parkinson from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Alimus and said. You are a child of the devil and enemy of everything. That is right. You are full of all kinds of deceits and trickery. You will never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord. Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the lights of the sun. Immediately, mists and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the Parkinson saw what had happened. He believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Thank you very much, Gloria. Do keep that passage open or switched on in front of you.、Uh, my name's Morris. I'm one of the leaders here. I'll be opening up that passage for us today, and I'm just going to pray for us as we look at it together. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that this amazing story of the first church. Can open up to us the work of the same Spirit who lives in us today, and so we pray for His work. Please, will you form us and change us and empower us to do the good works you've planned for us to do? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, I would say, as a church, <clears throat> we're still sort of in the restarting phase after having a whole couple of years of totally disrupted church life. We're getting there, but I still feel like you know we're still pushing everything up the hill before we've tipped it over the top to feel like we're freewheeling again, if we ever will be.、Uh, the last couple of years, it's always been Sunday morning that someone started coughing, or it's always been the night of our Zoom connect that I felt I'd been on Zoom calls all day, or it's always been Sunday that's come and I felt like in a totally bad mood and feeling like this thing will ever end. And I think we're still at this stage where lots of us are sort of out of the habit of coming to church, and maybe we're not quite super inspired to gather with other Christians yet. Now I'm preaching, you know, to the choir such and such here, as in you're here, so you obviously think there's some good reason to be here, or you're watching at home. You obviously think there's some good reason to do that. But I find chatting to people since we've had all of this disruption that it's much easier for people to find reasons not to come. Than it was before. The habit's broken. 
the hall is cold and we have to keep the door open and we have to wear masks. And honestly, the gathering can feel a bit uninspiring. Maybe I'm just uh, feeling negative. But honestly, I get it. There are days, not today, but there are some days that I'm only here because it's my job and most of the rest of you don't have that reason. Yet, I am going to say to you today that giving my life to working under God to build a church, I still think it's the best thing I could possibly do, uninspired as I may sometimes feel. And I'm rediscovering that as we study the book of Acts. Because the book of Acts says the Holy Spirit, God's alive presence, is living, active and real in normal gatherings of Christians. No matter how uninspiring and messed up they may seem. It's worth sticking with it. Now I will say this, what I've discovered in reading Acts, is that as the Holy Spirit forms churches through people believing in Jesus, the Holy Spirit's definition of what is a good church can be a bit different from mine. You know, the church may, as I return to it, not be the brilliant experience of my imagination. The Holy Spirit-filled church may be uncomfortable. But if God is still doing, which I think he is, through churches, what we see him doing here in Acts, then it is definitely worth sticking with on the bad days. So well done for making it this morning or tuning in at home. We're at this stage in Acts where we've come to uh, get to know the church in Antioch. And the church in Antioch is free. That is, it's the first church, first incarnation of a church that's not connected to Jerusalem. So it's the first uh, church, the first gathering of Christians that isn't a sort of offshoot of Judaism. Uh, It's not uh, a bit of the temple religion. It's formed by the Spirit somewhere else completely. It's Jew and non-Jew together appointing their leaders. And this is going to be the pattern now for the rest of church history, actually, that the Spirit forms new communities in different cultures at different times that are not connected to headquarters in Jerusalem. And Acts has been showing us that the Spirit is equally available and real in local outposts as much as it was in the central place to begin with. And this Antioch church in Syria, so not in Israel, we've seen has been growing, serving, learning, helping the poor, doing all the things the churches are supposed to do, but they're not content with that. The next move of the Spirit is that they send. Now, we miss that. If you've been in church any length of time, you've probably picked up that's something we think is important, sending people out to do things. But this really is a remarkable step. There is no central authority in Jerusalem masterminding this, saying, you know, we're the centre and you go there and you go there and we need to reach there. Every local church in the power of the Spirit should have welling up out of them people who go to serve the Lord in different places. Even in this early days, we're seeing at it's best what the church can be. So I hope this morning will inspire you to persist with church however you're feeling today, but also maybe challenge you a bit that what the Spirit is making may not always be what you are looking for. So the first thing that we see, first thing that we see is everyone gets the best. Everyone gets the best. Have a think for a moment, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, 
about the people who have impacted you with God's words, who've shaped you as a Christian. Have a think about that. Sometimes, I guess, it might have been a talk that someone like me gives from the front of a room in a gathering like this. But I guess that the moments of learning, of being taught that you can remember, were actually came along at very unlikely moments from very unlikely people. Once here at Christchurch, I was speaking, I was giving what I thought was a pretty boring talk, to be honest, about marriage, and saying what I thought was a pretty uncontroversial thing, that marriage should be between one man and one woman, you know, just two people in a marriage. And at the end, a visitor to our church, who's here for a few months studying in Liverpool, who's from a Central African country, came to me and sort of uh, gently told me off and said, you know, I agree with what you say, but I come from a culture where people are becoming Christians and they already have two or three wives. So what are we going to do about that? It's like, interesting, I never really thought of that as an issue, but thank you for your insight. And then he was like, while I'm here, can I talk to you about pensions? I was like, if, if you must. <laughs> Some people are interested in that. He said, I've discovered this thing that Western Christians do, and no one ever calls them to stop it. They save up all this money for a day that they might retire. What's that about? What do you mean, what, what do you mean what's that about? It's what, what we do. He was like, I come from a country where the church can't feed the children who come. And I've come to the West and discovered that Christians are piling away money for a day that they might never get to, because lots of them die before they ever draw their pension. And I want to know what's that about. Why did you never mention it in your sermons? I was like, hmm, good point. <laughs> Do some reading, theology of pensions. No, I am not. Uh, pensions, we can talk about that another time. The point of the story is this. I was taught with prophetic insight something about myself only because I was engaging with people who are different to me, from a different culture, background. Now, if you look at the church in Antioch, these first few verses, it just looks like a list of names of the people who are prophets and teachers in the church, but they're a very significant list. Barnabas was probably a Jew from Cyprus. Simeon was a black African Lucius of Cyrene, that was in Libya, so he's a total Gentile. It could have even been Luke himself who wrote the book, some people think. Manaean, who is a friend of Herod's family. Now remember we learned about Herod last week. Not a nice man, not a, nice, not a friend of the church. But here he is, as a prophet and teacher. And then Saul, a Turkish Jew who, until very recently, never would have mixed with non-Jews at all. Even today, Turkey and Cyprus hardly have the happiest relationship, do they? But here they are, united in the first non-Jewish church. They all welcomed a friend of their enemy because that person was gifted by the Holy Spirit to be prophetic and teach. And a Libyan and a black African, so probably from somewhere in more central Africa. Now, 2,000 years of this, we can be blind to the radicalism of the Holy Spirit's work here. But if you think about it, if you were sorting this organisation and the Spirit wasn't doing it, it's obvious, isn't it, that Saul should be the leader. He should be the main leader. He's got loads of Bible knowledge. He's Jewish. He seems to be clearly the one. And maybe Barnabas is a second in command because he's Saul's disciple. 
But instead, what the Holy Spirit does is this shared, plural leadership of people from everywhere, lots of whom have never even met Peter, the main man up till now. They're not even from Israel. The Holy Spirit is doing something different in the church. He's spreading the gift of prophecy, and we mustn't get too hung up on what that means. I just think it means a wide range of insight uh, spiritually, teaching people, which I don't think just means preaching, but the Holy Spirit is spreading these gifts far and wide, racially, with little regard to background. And racism was a thing in the ancient world, but this first model church has, very quickly, someone who probably experienced racism, teaching them. So undoubtedly, still in the world today, there are Christians who are racist. They've even set up separate churches for people of different races. But any Christian who does that is a hypocrite. Because the first church took a totally different model. Now, you might have noticed at this point, there are no women involved as yet. Later on in the New Testament, women are too gifted by the Holy Spirit to be prophets and teachers, if the gifts even operate in a slightly different way. But equality, which we think is like very central to life, is a new principle introduced by the New Testament. It's interesting. Someone I saw, uh, a Christian evangelist, was tweeting the other day about all of this Boris Johnson parties, all of that stuff, if you have kept up with any of that. Uh, And, um, of course, we're all totally affronted that someone who makes the rules doesn't obey the rules. Because we have this real sense that we're equal. But someone was tweeting, this Christian was saying, in the ancient world, if you'd said to the Roman emperor, hey, you make the rules, but you don't keep the rules, he'd have been like, yes. That's what it is to be an emperor. The idea that there should be equality, it's new here. It's not actually new. It was there in Genesis. But it's new to the world, the non-Jewish world here. The Holy Spirit Church learns and receives insights from all sorts of people. More than that, actually, the Holy Spirit Church, people expect to hear from God through people who are not the majority culture of the church. And that models the truth of Jesus. If you think about Jesus, whose work is continuing through the church, that is the community he would form. His big message was everyone, no matter their background, stands right before God the same way, based on what he's done, not on their goodness or their background or their ethnicity. And so his spirit gives gifts without discrimination And if he does discriminate, he gives the gift more to people who seem less likely. It's Jesus who does that. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, which would be a fair question, why then aren't there more people like me, who whatever your like me is, leading in our church? Well, it could be that our church is led too much by the culture we're in and not by the spirit. And we need to pray and ask for the spirit to work. Our expectation should be that God is ever widening who he is gifting to speak truth to us. But the other thing about these people who were appointed in verse 2 is that they are marked by being worshippers. They're found fasting and praying. 
And I guess if you want your gifts or people like your gifts to be recognised by the church and you want that, the thing that will mean you sort of are recognised is that you worship. You have a worship life. But speaking to us as listeners, participants in the church, here's what I think Acts 13 is saying. On your worst days, when you're most tired of church, you should still come expecting expecting, not just open to, but expecting the quote-unquote least likely people to be speaking prophetically, insightfully into your life. It's what the Holy Spirit does. You know, um, one of my colleagues is always talking about uh, Scottish revivals. You might be able to guess who it is. And uh, one of the revivals we were talking about the other day began with two old ladies, poor, had nothing not significant in their culture, praying in a sort of shack where they lived. And God started this amazing revival in Scotland through them praying and more praying people joining in. Now that's amazing. But I want to think about that situation. Why weren't all the university-educated male ministers round at that house sitting at their feet learning about a revival? Because that's the way church should work when the Spirit is working. We tend to be much more sort of like, I'm going to clump together with people like me and learn from people like me and they understand me. When people tell me they feel tired or bored of church, often, not always, but often it's because their practice is to come, mix with the small group of people they already know, therefore hear things they've already heard and leave. And then they sort of think through or they get this sense, I don't actually have to come to church to do that. I can mix with people like me wherever I like. But what if, instead of measuring church that way, we joined in with what the Spirit is powerfully doing and sought out people who we know are really worshipping Jesus from whoever they are and say, please, I want to learn from you. Give me your insights. Imagine the spiritual life that would spring up. Now, I get it's pretty hard to do this in this meeting. I mean, I'm aware I am dominating the platform at this moment. Uh, I'm not asking for much input. That is why one of the things we're always saying in church is like, please, if you're going to come, come to this meeting and go to a small gathering as well. But sometimes people say, I even feel this lack of energy in my small gathering. Well, maybe that might be to do with the way you're coming. Not thinking, oh, well, it's my group, so I go to that on Tuesdays or whatever. But if we think the people who are different to me in this group are going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit tonight to tell me things I couldn't have seen myself. Amazing opportunity. And I do love this particularly about our church. It gives chances for this to happen. Lots of churches I've been in in my life I never would have met a Central African exchange student questioning me about pensions. But to see difference as exciting and an opportunity takes commitment, it takes excitement, takes inspiration to say, I'm going to join in with what the Spirit is doing. It is different from what I naturally would have chosen. Someone was saying to me recently, someone who's been in our church for quite a while, said, do you know, I've never, my kids in this church have never had loads of kids the same age as them. There's been a small number, but never loads the same age as them. 
And actually, as time goes on, there's less now than there were in the past. And that can be hard and tiring and a struggle and not what we would have chosen. But I'm also amazed at the way God has spoken to my children through all the huge variety of people who've been through our home. It's amazing. And imperfectly, we should be amazed we get to be a part of that, to be beneficiaries of what the Spirit is doing. I mean, I love that we're not just told, by the way, uh, the church was diverse. Could have just said that. These people are named. They are, they would have had no uh, space in a geographically limited, ethnically limited religion. They wouldn't have been welcomed there, but they are elevated, named through church history. And that is what's going on. Not probably what we would have designed, but qualified by the Spirit to speak prophetically to people who are different to them. So worship Jesus, be serious about connecting with God in prayer and fasting, and God can and will start using you, whoever you are, to speak words of truth to others. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. Now I realise I've spoken to for a while, and we're still only really in verse 1. Don't panic. We're going to accelerate as we go through. Uh, here's the next thing that we see. The Spirit calls to send the best. If you're at our church for any length of time, um, longer than, say, two or three years, you'll notice that a lot of people come and go. It's a particular challenge of being in an urban church, and that can be hard. But it's not just the turnover of people's lifestyles. You know, someone gets a new job or gets married and moves away. We actually quite often, not as often as we like, but still quite often, send people to do mission in other parts of the world. And every now and then, we send groups of people to start new churches or work with churches that are struggling to bring new life to those places. And uh, also, you may not, because the pandemic has stopped it, every other year we have a church weekend away where we go away for a couple of nights with most of those churches together. And I've got to say, when that gathering of three or four hundred people get together... I sometimes am tempted to think, gosh, if we'd never done this church planting thing, we'd have a really great church. <laughs> you know, look at that person. They're so amazing at kids' work. They could be, you know, such a blessing to us. The band with all these musicians from different places sounds amazing. The singing of all of us together. Wow, it's awesome. So I'm tempted to think that. When I'm tempted to think it, I also look around and think, wow, there are people who've become Christians at this weekend away. He never would have become Christians through our church. They never would have made it all the way here to hear about Jesus. But someone started talking about Jesus just around the corner from where they live. And now they know him. Here's the thing, though, about sending people on mission or to do what we call church planting. And this is no offence to anybody who's still here, which is all of you. I'm still here. <laughs> the people who want to do that tend to be the really great people. There are many people I know who are here who miss the spiritual friendship and energy of people who went to plant other churches or to help struggling churches. And the thing about doing that is when you go to do that, it's quite busy. So it's not like they've got loads of time to like come around to your house. And I think there's even a temptation to think, well, maybe I'll just look for a church where that isn't happening because it'll be less disruptive to me. 
I'd feel happier in a church that wasn't doing that. But it is amazing to me, here in this first model of a church, when they pray and fast and they actually hear the Spirit's voice speaking, the thing they're told to do is to send the most core people off to do the mission. I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? Barnabas and Saul were the ones, if you read about two chapters ago, who'd actually taught and encouraged them. I mean, they must have thought, you know, have we tuned the radio in wrong here? I mean, we, you know, how did the Holy Spirit speak? There's so many questions about that, isn't it? Like, what did you hear? What did the voice sound like? You know, was it booming? Was it, it doesn't tell us any of that. But when they said, send Barnabas and Saul, they must have been like, really? Couldn't we send, you know, Simeon? He's from another culture. He'll be good at this. Now, I've never heard the Holy Spirit speaking in a voice, but the pattern of the type of thing he'd do is to send people out who seem really key to what we have going on here. And if people are signing up to do that, as over the years, I've found lots of people are hard, which is amazing, that's a sign the Spirit is doing something, he's at work. Perhaps not what I would choose, but it is the most exciting thing that could possibly be happening. Now, just to be clear, this isn't a build-up to some secret plan. I'm not going to be like at the end of the sermon, ta-da, we're going to plant a church in, you know, Manchester. Um, <laughs> but sooner or later, it will come, someone we really depend on, together we'll send to the church that they need to go somewhere else. And we don't want to say, oh, well, I'd kind of prefer to be in a church that isn't really like that, because we don't want to be against what the Holy Spirit is doing. Again, I just think it's one of the great things about being a church. I don't want to use the word magic because it feels a bit Harry Potter. But there's a sort of like miraculous thing the Spirit does that we're not just a group of people coming to an opinion about something. The church becomes like a living organism given life by the Holy Spirit moving amongst us as we're really serious about worshipping Jesus and praying to him. But when that life comes of the Spirit amongst us, one of the first things the Holy Spirit does is propel the best people out to somewhere else. It's Jesus' Spirit, and the church is continuing to do what Jesus did. Remember, Jesus was always doing this, if you read the Gospels, going somewhere else to talk to people. And I love the words, just a little uh, moment later on in the story, when in verse 9, Saul uh, suddenly is called Paul. And that's how you might know him. And he's just called Paul for the rest of the book. Apparently, the word Saul, which is a Hebrew name, sounded like an insulting word in Greek. It sounded like the word, I don't know, stupid person or something. I don't know, my Greek's not good enough. It was a really rubbish name for reaching non-Jewish people. So we just changed it to Paul. It's a sign his needs, the person the Holy Spirit was right to send who is willing to give up his very culture so that people would hear about Jesus. Well, here's the third thing that we see, and this is the sort of exciting seeming bit of the story, but we're going to go through it pretty fast. Off they go to Cyprus, verse 4, which could well be Barnabas' home island, and they preach to Jewish people first, but the first interested person we meet is the Roman proconsul, which just means governor of the area, Sergius Paulus. 
But there is an ethnically Jewish sort of occult practitioner. This was the best internet picture I could find of what I think he might look like. He, he lives under red lights and looks creepy. He's a pagan worshipper who wants to stop this Roman ruler listening to the gospel. So Paul, as he now is, faces him down. He says, no, what you're doing is wrong. It is against God. And then, far from leading Sergius Paulus away from the gospel, he gets confused. He can't lead anybody anywhere because he's blinded and needs other people to lead him around. And the proconsul believes, he's astonished by the miracle, but Luke doesn't want us to get uh, distracted by that. He says, but the thing he's really amazed about is the teaching about the Lord. Now, in our country, at our time, this seems like a strange story. But, I mean, this is really not unheard of in the world today, and we shouldn't be naive about it. I know several people who've been sent by their church discerning the work of the Holy Spirit on mission, who've who've experienced really strange and weird opposition from occult practitioners. In lots of parts of the world, that is just not strange. Uh, It's not actually even strange in our part of the world. Sometimes there was once... Uh, I did a university mission in a university not in Liverpool but not far from here where every time the Christian Union put up in a poster uh, advertising one of their events people were drawing like upside down crosses and other occult symbols on them so sort of weird occult against the gospel stuff is not something for yesterday the thing uh, and, and even the Church of England which you know is not a church known for its radical beliefs has like a little service written for exorcism of evil spirits. So there we go. Everybody thinks it still happens, real Christians. But even if you've never experienced that, and I guess lots of us haven't, the New Testament is just a lot more spiritual about all of life than we are. So just as Christians have God's spirits living in them, God's spirits living in them, the New Testament encourages us to see the whole world, the empires, the powers, the institutions, the governments that hate the gospel, as not just physical things, but having spiritual forces behind them. Paul met those spiritual forces in this strange sorcerer, trying to stop people listening to the gospel. We still meet them in uh, institutions that protect evil, suppressing the message about Jesus, taking on the church. Occasionally, don't you see something in the news about an institution, even an institution you would have thought you could trust, committing and covering up such evil things you couldn't even have imagined it. And I think it's right to say there's something darkly spiritual at work there. Uh, there's a guy, I, I mean, I don't know, I just sort of know of him. Um, he, is, he lives in Wales. And uh, he basically realised that a town near where he lived was a real centre for people trafficking into Wales. So he moved to that town with a group of people. They planted a church. They started a business which employs people they've managed to rescue from people trafficking. And he actually does quite a lot of standing up in the street just denouncing this terrible evil in the town. Very powerful thing. But let me tell you, it has not all been like, you know, cups of tea and flowers. It's not all been people saying, oh, great job you're here. We love you welcoming people from trafficking, which you think might happen. Even in 
state institutions which you think might be on his side, there have been people saying, oh no, don't cause a fuss. Don't unsettle the status quo. There are always dark forces at work. But just like we saw in the children's talk, almost, when I managed it in the end, while those forces seem tall, a Christian with the Holy Spirit is always taller. In this story, we have a picture. Paul just denounces this evil. Says, stop it. You're not going to stop people hearing about Jesus. And it works. That's just a picture of the church's work summed up in one story. We take on evil. We fight with all we have to stop evil winning and leading people away from Jesus. We're empowered to do it by God's spirit. I say fight. It's dangerous language. We don't actually fight. The spirit doesn't. And has never inspired the church to start any sort of holy war. Our weapons are truth. A faith in Jesus. And indeed in miracles God will do. If that's what's needed to fight evil. And like I said, people sent out from this church have experienced weird spiritual opposition. People sent out to plant churches or do mission have ended up facing the oddest type of opposition. But let me tell you, their story is they've also been given power to persist by God's real presence. But I do want to say one of the things about our church is that we do want to view everybody as sent. Every week, all of us who are Christians are sent out. And all of us probably face evil in different forms wherever we are. Please do not think the spiritual thing you do is to come to church once a week, maybe serve on a team, worship together and pray. That is a spiritual thing, but we're sent out from here to serve spiritually into a world world marred by evil every day. And look at the world around us. Doesn't it need empowered Christians to confront evil, to speak up? to gently share about Jesus, to live the spirit-filled life wherever God puts you day by day. Isn't that needed? And I know there are people in our church having to stand up against evil and twisted situations, helping abuse survivors, fighting cruel systems, sticking up for the person being victimised, reaching out to offer life and hope to nobody else who thinks is important. But let me tell you from the first missionary trip The spiritual forces are there at work which want to stop you. Don't let them. There's this verse we did in 1 John, which we looked at last term, which says, He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. So this story is to offer you hope. Our victory may be a lot harder and longer coming than Paul's here. I get that. But the same power is there, helping you take on what's wrong. And I know I live a sheltered life. My colleagues are all Christians. I can't imagine the things some of you are facing, the opposition. But you have the power of God walking with the Spirit so that people hear the word of God. And walking with him through facing opposition, that's just been a feature since the beginning. Do be inspired by church, these diverse 
bands of brothers and sisters worshipping, fasting, praying, sending their most capable people into the world to confront what was evil in the power of the Holy Spirit. The church doing that feels pedestrian. It can feel like hard work. In fact, it's the same Jesus who did all of those things, continuing his work through us no matter who we are. But I get some of us face that. Think about what we are facing day by day and you think, I just can't. I just can't. Doing the next thing to serve God is too hard. Well, one of the things we're going to do now as we take communion together is spend some time drawing strength from Jesus. There's a thing about communion, isn't there? We don't just look at the bread and the wine. We could say that, couldn't we? The bread and the wine, we look at it and remind us that Jesus died for us. We eat it and drink it because what we're saying is we need the strength that comes from his death to feed us for what we've got to do. And that's what we're going to spend some time doing now. Let's just take a few moments of quiet to reflect what we've heard.